brought to you by Penguin. Quite often a good thing to do is if I'm reading it and I get bored, I realise, oh, if I'm bored, the reader's going to be bored, so I put a murder in there. And do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You just have to, somebody comes in with a gun. Yes. That's what Raymond Chandler used to do, is mm-hmm. just somebody walks in with a gun. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where our authors explore their sources of inspiration through a series of objects they bring into the studio. I'm Katie Brand and today I'm joined by an author whose work is often labelled as Tartar Noir, part of a stable of very successful Scottish crime fiction writers. She's won awards for Crime Novel of the Year twice and has been inducted into the Crime Writers Association Hall of Fame. Her latest novel, Conviction, has been selected by Reese Witherspoon's book club and won the Mac. Vanny Prize for Scottish Crime Book of the Year 2019. It tells the story of Anna, whose husband runs off with her best friend, so she tries to distract herself by listening to a true crime podcast, only to discover she knows one of the victims. Its author is here with me today, Denise Mina. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> quite a long uh, introduction to you there, but you am very old. Well, you've done a lot. You've achieved a lot. You're highly acclaimed. So there was quite a lot to get through. Before we move on to that, so tartan noir, it's one of those sort of slightly reductive phrases that people who are put into those kinds of, not boxes exactly, but, but do you like it? Yeah, no, I mean, we are all very different. But what it does mean, especially at the start of my career, was that I was always associated with far more successful writers. <laughs> so I was always mentioned when they talked about Val McDermott or Ian Rankin. Is it a friendlier atmosphere in that world, do you think? I think it definitely is. And I think these things really are just marketing terms. And if you think about people like Dostoevsky or a lot of Zola, they would have been crime fiction now. Chekhov wrote a crime novel. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of meaningless term. Having it collegiate, it stops you going mad. Um, it stops you taking yourself too seriously, which is very easy to do. And you spend a lot of time on your own and you need support of other people who do what you do you know we think of writing as a lone Garrett style experience and you express your specialness through writing but actually you're making something for someone else to read it's not other people get a glimpse into your brain it is a, a two way street and I always think when someone reads a book it's different every time because they bring the prism of their own experience to it. So it is a conversation with the individual reader and uh, and it's not just you solo plummeting through a vacuum in space. Mm. And, you know, it's silly that we think of it that way. I don't know why we think of it that way. Yeah, and the other thing I admire about this sort of fiction and, and enjoy reading is just the focus on telling a good story. Yeah. You're not sort of experimenting with the form or pushing at the envelope or worrying about grand literary prizes. Isn't it You're funny? You're telling stories. But isn't it funny that we are so denigrating about narrative? Mm. Also, escapism mm. in this day and age. I think it saved more lives than penicillin. I've read books, trashy books, that saved my life because, you know, I was in a bad place. I read them. And when I came out of reading that book, you know, my body chemistry changed. I was doing a job that I hated and I would slide off to the toilet for 15 <laughs> minutes and have a bit of an old read because it's so precious. It's such a precious human resource Mm. you know and to be able to conjure a story is a great skill so uh, we've gone into a kind of slightly meta uh, zone here no no I mean we're about to because we're recording a podcast now about a book that's about a true crime podcast which is the backbone of conviction that we're talking about true crime podcasts are huge at the moment aren't they I mean they really just shoot to the top of the the kind of charts when did you have the idea to put this at the centre of a book so I was listening to true crime podcasts really obsessively and I just thought this is such 
an interesting narrative form because it was before it became commercialised podcasting. So it was just people doing it out of their living room because they were fascinated by it. And I'd written a true crime book. The book before Conviction was called Long Drop. And then um, almost as soon as the book came out, everybody started listening to true crime podcasts. Mm. So it was just very lucky because somebody said to me in one of the interviews, what if podcasting just dies? I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think you need to worry about that. But it was a legitimate question at the time. It wasn't being mad. Oh, no, people initially were very much like... If you you weren't into it, it was just kind of like, well, it's just somebody talking. Yeah, I don't understand. What's that about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So let's move to your first object that you've brought along. And I think your first one is your phone. Why is it particularly an inspiration for you? Well, because I listen to podcasts on it and also because everyone's always moaning about phones and phones this and phones that, I think they're amazing. There's something really special about podcasts, about somebody whispering in your ear, about somebody telling you a story. It feels really one-to-one. And I think if it wasn't for phones, podcasts wouldn't have got the traction that they've got. Mm-hmm. And um, and also just the miracle of phones, because I'm 53 and I remember when you had to go to libraries to look things up. Yes. And I remember when you had to make an appointment with a policeman who might not turn up with your 20 questions with yes or no answers and you don't have to do any of that anymore Mm. if you want to know about forensic document examination you can just look it up on your phone and watch a video. Yes. That's amazing. It is extraordinary. I mean, I started in TV researching 20 years ago and I, I would have to phone embassies to get the pronunciation of something or to check a question for something. And yeah, it was extraordinary, isn't it? Or microfiche machines. I know. I still like use that. them, though. Yeah, I do rolling. still use yeah, them. Yeah, they're though. nice. They are nice. But, um, but, I remember, but I went to Buenos Aires last year on my own to investigate a true crime case and I don't speak Portuguese but I managed because I had a phone yeah so it's just I just I just think they're they're incredible. I read a bit of Bill Gates's book. I think it's called The Road Ahead from 1995. Um, and there was one passage that struck me so strongly in it. This is Bill Gates, you know, a visionary and all of that. And he says something like, I think that maybe in the future, it's just possible that we might be able to use some sort of device to make a call, to book a restaurant, to book a flight, to look up something in an encyclopedia. But, you know, don't quote me on that because I might yeah. be crazy. You just think, God, that's so recent. Um, and we're doing all of that and you wouldn't you wouldn't even think I'm moaning not about to. it. Yeah, I know. Do you know I what know, I mean? Yes. We're all moaning about it. And yeah. people are saying, Oh, you know, idiots walking along looking at their phones. Mm. Sometimes they're learning Japanese. Mm-hmm. The access it gives you to other worlds and, and other stories. And also I'm a really frantic reader. I read all the time. And there, there's always a real sadness for a, a, a reader or someone who loves being lost in stories. Those times when you have to walk somewhere or you have to go to the supermarket. Mm. Now you can listen to a podcast. Mm. You need never be left alone with your murderous thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and do you no have murderous things. thoughts? <laughs> just from time to time? No, it's just anxiety. Yeah. It's usually, I need to really? fold that washing. Is it anxiety or is it a desire for revenge? <laughs> a ruin. Which I have, yes. <laughs> so speaking of murderous thoughts, you studied law and you taught criminology yourself. So what? where did you move from academia into writing crime and stories? Well, I was doing a PhD on the mental illness and female offenders and the differential rates of ascription through the courts. And uh, it was very dull. I mean, the title makes it sound really <laughs> exciting, but it was very, very boring. Okay. And um, and I realised, actually, what an academic career is, is finding some really interesting ideas and you spend the rest of your career trying to disseminate them. So 
narrative. I thought if you could wrap this in a compelling narrative like crime fiction, which I was reading a lot of at the time, you could disseminate these ideas and change this narrative of all women are victims all the time. Anyone who's ever had anything bad happen to them, you know, is disposable. You know, sex workers are just props in someone else's story. You could overturn all of that if you had really compelling narratives. But I mean, really, um, you're a writer. It's a compulsion. It's not really a lifestyle choice. It's mm. just something you can't not do. And I was 32 and I thought, you've got to give it a pop. And then if it doesn't work, you can be an unsuccessful academic. So I wrote the first few chapters and sent them off. And I said, you know, I'm a massive extrovert. It was all lies. I've done stand-up comedy. I hadn't. Um, <laughs> I love attention. I don't. And I've written this amazing book. And I hadn't. Right. And an agent said, can I see the rest of it? So I just sat. This is how long ago it was. I was using a floppy disk. So I sat with a cigarette in my mouth for three months and wrote Garnet Hill. And it got published. It was really, it was really unbelievable. Mm. It's a terrible origin story for a writer. No, I like it. But that's how I became a writer. I like um, it. You, you sold a pack of lies to an agent. Yes, I did. And got a deal. <laughs> yes, I did. That's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to ask writers about the environment they like to work in, where they do their best work and so on. And I believe one of your objects pertains to that rather well. It's to do with your desk. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I bought this desk in a flea market in Glasgow for 40 quid and it was an amazing flea market. It was called Paddy's, right? How long ago was this? Uh, this was 1988, 89 or mm-hmm. something like that. And, uh, and it came in two bits and it's obviously from an office somewhere because it's too big otherwise. But in Glasgow at that time, Glasgow was like West Berlin. Nobody stayed. Everybody with ambition left. So you could get like a ballroom for 20 quid a week. That would be your house. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every so these giant bits of furniture, you could buy them and keep them, right? So I've got this um, desk and it's utility furniture, which was during the war, they made all this furniture out of whatever they had available. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Yeah, It's got a series of drawers and copper handles on the drawers. And so they obviously only had copper. Mm. I don't know if you can see there. Yes, yeah, so I'm it's just looking at this picture on your phone. Oh, God, that's lovely. It's lovely. Oh, I really like that. It's I was bracing apart, myself for something sort of, I'm not very keen on sort of very dark wood, heavy antique stuff. So I was bracing myself to pretend to like it. Right. But this is actually genuinely lovely. No, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's a sort of paler colour, isn't it? And it's got, yeah, as you say, got those sort of quite narrow shallow drawers all the way down yeah it's got sort of plasticky top sort of pretend leather and it's got a lot of scores in it from someone using a a knife so I think it might have been a dry and it's got fag burns all the way along the edge <laughs> so I it's got a story it's, it's, it, it came it was an old lady when I got it you mm. know so obviously people have been taking their fags out and putting it on the side and saying John come and look at this drawing mm. of a railway engine or whatever <laughs> I don't know I don't know what they were doing at it but, uh, but it's just it served me so well and it's such a great big space you can push a project to the side and get on with something else mm. and uh, I'm just so grateful to that desk and, and that is a really happy place for me the sorting before you start a big project you know you can sort out your pencils and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. um I just love all that, that yeah. just that that having a and it is about a meter and a half long and you know maybe 80 centimeters deep mm. so you can actually it's big enough to get lost on yeah I love a big desk oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah and as you say tidying the desk making sure everything's just neat and tidy and cleaning the desk yes yeah. like the equivalent of I don't know about you but I have to clean my whole house before I start something new 
Do you? Yeah. See, I'm not tidy at all. Oh, so I don't was... know. I can get no. quite out of hand. If I take <laughs> my eye off the ball, it's tidy. amazing how fast My things... eye's never been on the ball. Oh, okay, so... <laughs> fine. <laughs> of course, it's a known procrastination technique, cleaning the house before you do any writing. But procrastination gets a bad name because that is part of the process, circling yes, the desk. that's true. It is, and you're thinking about it while you're circling the desk. And, and I think one of the things that comes with experience as a writer is allowing yourself to do that yeah. without feeling guilty. Yeah. I think one of the things that inexperienced people work about is quite understandably is that they are procrastinating and they beat themselves up but if if you actually use the procrastination and stop calling it that as you say that you're actually just letting sort of it settle in your brain to go into kind of layers almost and then you can start to organize it one of the really difficult things about writing is you have a really critical committee on your shoulder telling you everything's rubbish that is an important part of being a writer yeah using that voice without letting it paralyse you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So to return to the book uh, Conviction, Anna, the central character, is running from something, but she's not in any way helpless. That's what I Mm. particularly liked about her. And from what you've said already, that's obviously something you're very conscious of about the representation of women in crime novels and so on. How did she come to you as a character? To be honest, I was going through a bit of a bad time and I really wanted to write a book that was very compelling. And you have achieved that. And Well, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a story that would really involve you and it, and it, it had to not have someone who was in a good place in it. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of story forms in the book. There's the drawing room scene. There's the strangers on a train scene. You know, there's a lot of travel in it. Yes, you know, yes. There's a big propulsion forward. And it was just about somebody who's very, very stuck. I just love the idea of somebody stepping out of their life and stepping into a story which whenever I read that's what I'm doing whenever I listen to a podcast that's what I'm doing Mm. you know really at the very beginning of true crime the most amazing thing happened which was with Serial which was about a murder in Baltimore posses of people went to Baltimore to try and solve that crime yeah I find that amazing and they actually now in America sometimes they'll say that you know the police are asking for information please don't try and solve this crime on your own because you'll just trample over all the evidence. Please don't make a podcast about this, at least until we've examined the scene of the crime. Or at least until we've interviewed all the witnesses. Because they're going to interview witnesses and they're like, are you doing a podcast? Is this another podcast? And they're like, no, we're here about the murder. Oh no. You know, um, so I just, I found that really amazing and I wondered why people were so compelled to step out of their own lives and walk into another story but it's something that I really really I think everybody understands that yeah and one of the things I really enjoyed about it because I always enjoy this in books is when when the crimes and the bad behavior involve really rich glamorous people whose lives are crumbling under them and I believe you've in this particular instance with conviction I had a sort of sideways glance even at at Donald and Melania Trump. Is that right? Well, Anna is a trophy wife Mm. and I was fascinated by Melania Mm. because I think she might be a murderer. Really? Yes. If you were a murderer... Where would be better to hide than next to a big shouty man? But why hasn't she murdered him? I know. <laughs> Please, Melania. All, these, all this gun crime in America. <laughs> For God's sake, Melania, step up your game. Um, but yes, I mean, Donald Trump is what he is. We, he's as transparent as anything, you know, the emperor unclothed, as we can all see. But Melania Trump is a different thing entirely, Well, she? I meet a lot of trophy wives, mm. right? And actually, trophy wives are amazing women. Yes. But quite often you meet a woman at a dinner and she's got a helmet here and a lot of jewellery on and you actually get her to talk and she's like, 
a Korean translator and spent time in a death camp. Mm -hmm. And they're... These women are extraordinary. Yeah, they are absolute nails. And there's a reason why their husbands have been attracted to them. It's not just because they're very... Good looking. Yeah, there's something else going on as well, isn't there? Also, you know, I just thought the idea of a trophy wife of some big, big braggadocio man who lives in the same house and is very establishment and all that kind of thing, Mm. she could be anyone. Mm. And if you were running from a terrible, dark secret, that would be a great place to hide. Yes. And in fact, I think Jeff Bezos actually said something about how what he was looking for in a partner was someone who could get him out of a prison in a developing country. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) And lo and behold, he is now, I think, with a woman who's got a kind of helicopter licence. Oh, really? Yeah, black belt in various martial arts. These women are amazing. Where do they find the time to do these things they they are very that's what I have found with women who I've met like that that the discipline they're often up at 4am they're doing Doing all kinds of yeah all kinds of things for them time is not chronological which you know I mean that gives you some idea of how well they exist in a time zone that just only kind of occurs on private jets yeah like they're never in a time zone because for tax reasons for long enough to actually know when bedtime is yeah that's what so it's a whole other weird and as you say and as you reveal in the book in different ways with different characters it is it's a very mysterious world, in fact. Part of noir fiction and part of what is satisfying about noirish fiction is it has to have a very rich overstory. It really does. It really needs what to is tie it, into What's money. an overstory? Just about well, the, the, you know, it's a sort of overarching story that, you know, I mean, if, if, if you wrote a noir novel about misbehaviour on the city council, you would have to find somebody with a lot of money for it to be satisfying mm-hmm. because that is the promise of crime fiction is that the crime matters. It's not just hillbillies stabbing each other in a pub. There That's not that interesting. Re- mm, there needs to be a reward, a sort yeah. of material reward. Also, I think, you know, narrative is familiar. The promise of crime fiction is this is a story you've heard before told in a different way. Mm. If you write a crime fiction story that isn't the story you've heard before, the bad guy never gets found, for example, that's very unsatisfying. It does have certain narrative beats that you can hang anything on. You can hang really radical stuff on. I mean, even Therese Raquin has that narrative arc and, you know, and it has the false death and it has lots of things that are very familiar. So you can read very, very difficult, complicated things if they're hung on that overarching narrative arc. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, just the nature of story I could talk about for hours. Yeah, it's such yeah. a fascinating Let's topic. So tell us about your next object. Uh, I think you've got one in front of you. It's a bit more portable than your last one. So uh, what's that? It's a very special piece of equipment that I really fetishise. Mm-hmm. It's a pencil. Right. I thought it was. You did, oh, yes. oh, you've got a good eye. Yeah. <laughs> you've got a good eye. This is like the antique roadshow for idiots. Yeah. <laughs> right, but it's a little stubby pencil. This one is a this one's a B. Uh-huh. And it's a special pencil. I have a pencils guy. Because if your life is very small and it centres around stationery, if you meet another stationary fetishist, it's a real kind of you know, this friend of mine has a shop called Draw in Glasgow and he sells pencils and he really understands why you love pencils. Uh, what I love about pencils is the noise they make mm-hmm. when you're writing with them. Do you want a shot? Do I want to? Do you want a shot? Do you know yeah. what a shot is? No. It's a goal. Okay, thank yeah, you. So you can have a shot. I thought you were offering one. me a Jägermeister or something. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey. I mean, you know, we're about halfway through, but I don't think we should crack open the tequilas yet. So, right, I'll write my own name. Right. Like the narcissist I am. I can't think of anything else for it. Oh, it is a nice feeling. Oh, can you hear that? Makes a Do nice a big noise. line underneath. Okay, hang on. Can you hear it? You like that yes. noise? It, so sounds, it sounds like victory. 
I like a pencil too, and I do like you? yes, I do. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to pretend to on the same level as you. So so please, if you can articulate what it is you love about pencils so much. It's a classic design. I love the noise. Projector pencils, you know those mechanical pencils they're not the same they don't make that noise no. they don't have the whole thing of sharpening your pencils which is a way of getting ready for action mm-hmm. my life's so small <laughs> <laughs> um, also when this guy sells the pencils he's always got a story so for example this pencil is one of a box of 20 and these are the pencils that are used in Japanese primary schools. Mm-hmm. You can also buy like waterproof pencils for working in the field if you're a geologist. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole world of pencils. But there's something about four pencils all be sharpening them, laying them out in a little army next to your bit of paper, special paper. And it's a way of kind of getting your head round to, I think it's, there's something about looking at the page and making a map of what you're doing and pencils are an essential part of that. So it feels like the start of something. You know, when you write a book, it's brilliant when you first think of it and then the whole process is realising how flawed it is and how it's a mess and you're not up to the task. But the pencil sharpening bit is the immaculate conception of novel writing. <laughs> when you just think, this is great. Yeah. This time, more than any other time, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. And it's it, it, it feels like Christmas. Do you, are you saying you write longhand to the novels? No, I write them on the computer, but I often do maps. So what I do is I kind of bang away on it like an infinite number of monkeys and then I make a map of the chapters and what happens in them. Mm-hmm. So I, I try and fit it all in an A1 sheet so that it's visual. So I'll have like headlines, I'll have like the what needs to happen and then maybe colour code what needs to go in. Or Quite often a good thing to do is if I'm reading it and I get bored, I realise, oh, if I'm bored, the reader's going to be bored, so I put a murder in there. And, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You just have to, somebody comes in with a gun. Yes. That's what Raymond Chandler used to do, is just mm-hmm. somebody walks in with a gun. Um, and uh, so those little maps are how you make something better and better. So it feels like combing through a story to work out what's wrong with the narrative. And also, sometimes I just carry pencils with me just for fun. And I've always got a little notepad on me. And um, I quite like the smell of a pencil. Oh, um, he's got an electric pencil sharpener, <laughs> but it's only in the shop. And the smell, and also he gave me this brilliant Japanese brass pencil sharpener, oh, which yeah. never dulls. And it never snags on the... It never snags or or yanks the lead out. Mm-hmm. What's that about? No, that's not good. It's bad, isn't it? You know? I had a teacher who used to do them with a Stanley knife. I respect that. Do you? Yes, <laughs> I do. I respect that a lot. That was a kind of moment, the, a look of a true artisan. No, in your really, I really respect that. <laughs> do you not respect that? Yeah, I did. Also slightly feared it because I'm not sure he was supposed to have a Stanley knife just knocking bo- around. I think it's called a box cutter yeah, yeah. Yes, I know. A different time. A different time. <laughs> well, let's have a listen uh, to Some of Conviction, uh, the book by Denise Mina that we're talking about today. At the start of the book, we meet Anna and discover her love of podcasts. So let's have a listen to a clip now. The day my life exploded started well. It was early morning in November and I woke up without the use of an alarm clock. I was pleased about that. It was a concession to our couple's counselling. I wouldn't wake Hamish at six with my alarm clock and he wouldn't play Candy Crush on his phone all evening while ignoring the children. I was looking forward to my day. I had a new true crime podcast series waiting on my phone and I'd heard good things about it. I planned to listen to the first episode, get a taste for the story before I woke the kids for school and then binge on it while I trolled through a day of menial tasks. 
A good podcast can add a glorious multi-world texture to anything. I've resisted an Assyrian invasion while picking up dry cleaning. I've seen justice served on a vicious murderer while buying underpants. I lay in bed, savouring the anticipation. Watching light from the street ripple across the ceiling. Listening as the heating kicked on and the grand old dame of a house groaned and cracked her bones. I got up, pulled on a jumper and slippers and crept out of the bedroom. I loved getting up before everyone else. When the house was still and I could read or listen to a podcast alone in a frozen world. I knew where everyone was. I knew they were safe. I could relax. Hamish resented it. He said it was creepy. Why did I need this time alone, sneaking around the house? Why did I need to be alone so much? Trust issues, the couple's counsellor called it. I tried to reassure Hamish, I'm not planning to kill you or anything. But that was not reassuring, apparently. That was Conviction, written by my guest Denise Mina and read there by Kathleen McCarran. And the audiobook is available to buy now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. When you were writing the book, um, did you think about how it would sound or did you have a preference for who would read it or the kind of voice they had? I didn't really think about it at all, to be honest with you, but the audiobook is brilliant and mm. it is brilliantly read. And I couldn't really imagine how you would do all the different textures because, you know, there are so many different voices on the page. But um, I had. And accents. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time arsing about with graphics and then none of that went in mm -hmm. um, because I, I was kind of thinking about how would you visually represent all these different voices um, and we just used italics in the end <laughs> <laughs> the old ways are the best yeah, I know. <laughs> also while we're here do remember to rate comment and subscribe to the Penguin podcast we love to know what you think and we don't want you to miss our free fortnightly episodes you can also find us on your Alexa enabled device so, Denise, let's go to your final object now. Tell us about this. Uh, I have just had the word fire written down in my notes here. Uh, it's not It's not actual fire. Okay, and fine. I haven't brought any with me. Right, okay. You don't have a small bag of fire no, down by there. Yeah. It, it's in my shoe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's the fire in my office, which I think you can see there. And it's... Oh, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. See? I'm really jealous Are of you your whole me? setup there. The, whole the desk, setup. the fire, the tiles in front of the. There's some lovely tiles in front of the. Uh, oh, that's a, that's on a, the hearth, is it? Or what is it? Oh, it's black tiles. Yes, black tiles, and then there's a lovely rug with kind of green and red poppies, and I'm very, very envious of that. Nice big chair. And, oh, and listen, the chair. I'm gonna start writing crime fiction. Oh, Will that honestly, get me an office like that? Well, do you know what? I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're all nice to each other is because we're all making a living. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. It certainly helps. Well, doesn't it really it? helps you be nice to people. People, if yes, you're not dead, worries about money. Yes, that know? is absolutely true. Because uh, my office is very cold. When I put the fire on and I sit down in, I've got a little leatherette, red leather chair. Well, it's not leather, it's leatherette. And it's all cracked on the arse. And uh, and you can slump perfectly in it and put your feet on a, a footstool so you can work away and, you know, totally lose my chin in my neck. <laughs> and uh, I just feel so privileged to be making my living as a writer. And, you know, the longer I do it, the more I'm aware of better people than me who didn't have that luck. Because it is luck. I mean, people say, oh, you work very hard. But 
It is luck and there are better people than you and it's just, you know, people have helped you on the way and I'm just very grateful. It makes me really, really grateful Mm -hmm. and I think that's a great place to write from, actually. An awareness of how unlikely it is that you would be able to make a living or do it consistently or get better. And I think to remind yourself, yes, every now and again, that this is just really great, nice life. It's such a great life. It's such a privilege. And, you know, sometimes my first book was about someone who'd been in mental hospital and writing's funny because you don't get feedback immediately um, it, you know there wasn't Twister then and then five years later I met someone and she said she'd read it when she was in a locked ward and do you know what I mean <laughs> and, and I mean I remember reading books that meant the world to me and feeling a really incredible connection with the writer who might be dead and you just feel that all over the world there are people who, who have read you randos that you'll never meet or mm-hmm. never contact you and you have that connection with other human beings because it is really kind of sacred and it is really special and it's just such a privilege to be allowed to do that all day. So we touched on this briefly and just as we kind of come to a close, I'd like to go back to it about the notion of feminist crime fiction and whether it's getting better exposure and as you said, you know, often the female characters in crime fiction in the past have felt a bit disposable. When the Staunch Prize was established, which is to reward someone with a big prize for having crime fiction where the victim isn't a woman mm. or there isn't a sexual element to it mm-hmm. um, and it's you know so it's got to be a man and he's not to be sexually assaulted you know basically to encourage feminist crime fiction we were all really shocked because we've all been writing that for 30 or 40 years it's my whole career and um, so I was, I, I was going to supposed to be going to this big dinner in New York and I was trying I said to Laura Lippman Alifair Burke and Megan Abbott were going to come and we were going to get our portrait done and that's part of we've suddenly realised that no one is aware of the fact that this movement has been happening. I mean, there are courses on it. You can do a course on it in Burbank. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not a secret. Yeah. But for some reason, it just hasn't hit the mainstream that this is what we're all doing. And we've fundamentally changed crime fiction and no one seems to have noticed. There seems to be particular attention being paid now, more recently, to this problem in crime on TV, yeah. uh, crime drama on TV. And there's been a concerted effort just quite recently. Not, not It hasn't quite borne fruits yet, but this thing of women just always being, you know, oh God, I just don't want to see another woman well, eviscerated. Do you know, but do you think do you think it's lagging behind the, 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 the fiction, the writing, the TV, and perhaps it won't get the full attention until all media is, is on board with this? I think it's broader than crime fiction. Mm. I think... The idea of the perfect victim and who we value and who we care about is social. It's not about telly. There's a a serial killer just been uncovered in the States called um, Little and he killed 100 women and no one ever picked up on him because he was killing women of colour who were street sex workers. The public don't care about that. So my next book is about um, a series of sex murders that happened. It's true. It happened in Glasgow in the 1980s. And the final one, was a girl called Emma Caldwell. And Emma was a really lovely person. And she came from a lovely family. And her parents went on Crime Watch and said, please come forward with information about this. And there was a concerted effort to find Emma's killer. Before her, there were eight other women. A lot of them grew up in care. They weren't very sympathetic. They didn't have family to stand up for them. And um, so they were regarded as more disposable. That wasn't the cops, by the way. That was the public. So it's not about crime fiction. Crime fiction just reflects what's going on in society. And if we need to look at the way we value human beings rather than changing ITV's schedule for the autumn. 
Yes. It's a big issue. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yes, yes. And that the idea that women are just the sort of the inciting incident for the hero to go off and do something amazing. Exactly. You know, if a white young kid goes missing in America, there's a huge outcry. If a young child of colour from a poor background with unsympathetic parents goes missing, it's very hard to get people to care about it. Mm. And that's that's the real issue. It's not really about how people are represented in crime fiction. And just to close, you mentioned, um, as you were talking about that, that this was something you were looking at next in your work. So is that is that your new book? Is that Yeah, yeah. it's called The Less Dead. And it started off as a true crime book. But then I realised, you know, you can't really talk about those murders without basically just re-exploiting all those people. It's very difficult. So it became a really fictionalised version of someone goes to meet her birth parents and finds out that her mum was one of those women that was murdered and she enters into that world and what does she make of them what are those people actually like so I did a lot of research and interviewed the cops and that was kind of how I arrived at that conclusion and interviewed a lot of the women who were street sex workers in Glasgow at the time because it was during the heroin epidemic and they're absolutely amazing I mean sex work is changing fundamentally the way it's represented the way people are organised that's so interesting mm. that people are speaking up for themselves um, so it, it really changed over the course of writing because um, you you either recommitted the offence or totally fictionalised it. So it's, it's really changed. But it's called The Less Dead and mm-hmm. it's out in the autumn. Well, I will look forward to reading Good. that. Uh, and I loved reading Conviction, which is out now by my guest today, Denise Mina. Thank you so much. That's been a really fascinating oh, chat. Oh, it was brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks. What does being an author mean to you? From the early morning tweeters to the lunchtime lyricists, midnight emailers and all-day texters, new stories are being written every single day by people who don't even know their authors yet. We're looking for writers across the UK and Ireland to apply to right now. Penguin's free programme to find, nurture and publish new writing talent from communities underrepresented on the nation's bookshelves. You can define what it means to be an author. It starts with just 1,000 words. Go to penguin.co.uk slash right now to find out more.